data is really everything. It's like possibly the most important thing because AIs are trained on data and you evaluate AIs based on data. So it's almost sometimes difficult to really draw a hard line between what's AI and what's data. Welcome back to the Inspired Execution Podcast. Each episode shares the experience and learnings of a world-class leader on their journey to success. The guests on this podcast are bold, brilliant, and not afraid to change. As you navigate your own path, we hope you feel inspired by their stories, lessons learned, and the vision of the future. We are super pumped to have Marco Argenti on the podcast today. After spending six years as a VP at Amazon, Marco joined Goldman Sachs to lead the team through a massive digital transformation. His unique approach to driving change includes building for purpose, working backwards from the customer, and driving business outcomes. We talked about all this, as well as the importance of redefining success through every stage of your career. Marco, welcome to the Inspired Execution Podcast. Thank you, Chad. It's great to be here. You have led Goldman through a phenomenal transformation, and you talk a lot about embracing changes. How do you help people work through uncertainty to accept change quickly? So we have a series of what we call tenets for engineering that are really what guide the culture of Goldman Sachs engineering specifically. And one of our nine tenets is inspire trust. And I think really the best way to work through uncertainty and also sometimes through fear is to create an environment where people can really trust each other. They can afford to be open and vulnerable sometimes and really show themselves and in the truest sense. We believe that ultimately trust comes from transparency, to be transparent with each other, being very clear on what are your expectations and, you know, setting goals that are such that you have a certain tension to meet them, but they're all achievable. And sometimes, you know, people, you know, celebrate the fact that they can over deliver uh, on that even for a little bit. And so really celebrating victories. And I think ultimately trust builds a sense of safety. And of course, a sense of safety eliminates fear and actually gets people to feel that they can do the best work in this environment. I find when you're going through change, you obviously want to be very communicative and be transparent because that inspires trust. But you also need to take a set of people that you believe are, you know, you can use different words, are the leaders or the influencers. And you really want them to make, you want to make sure that they actually get it and can lead the rest of the team. Is that something that you found to be useful? I think ultimately setting the right culture is really one of the main responsibilities of leaders. And so really cultural change comes from the top because, you know, you need to lead by example. I think one of the things that we've been doing is really like when setting the engineering tenets and we're setting really like the guidelines on how we wanted to change the culture, we started by gathering, you know, the most senior leaders and having discussions on how do we want to role model actually the way we want to project ourselves to the rest of the organization in a way that we would have appreciated when we were uh, in a more earlier part of our career. And then, of course, you know, but it's not just a sort of a top-down exercise because at the, at the end of the day, I'm a big believer that you need to not only hold people accountable, but also empower them. And so really like going deeper in the organization and really having discussions and conversation on uh, 
how you make the culture something that it's really like what keeps us together as an organism, as an organization, I think is really ultimately what we want to aspire to. So it's this unique combination of top down in the sense of being a role model and also bottom up in the sense of being able to listen that I think creates the right combination of things. That's perfect. One of your quotes that I really love, do not just build, first ask yourself, why should I build anything? And that's building with a purpose, right? And I have many examples around that, but that's a concept you can use when you have a greenfield project, right? But does it also apply to the brownfield part? Like, you know, as you walked into Goldman Sachs, has that applied to what you are, how you are running the Goldman Sachs tech team? I think the why question is often, the ability to answer the why question is often the difference between success and failure, because it's really how you define success and then how you drive towards that. So the setting the objectives by answering the question, why should I build something? What is the opportunity and what is the problem that I want to solve is really the beginning of any project and, and how you also drive a project towards success. So one of our tenets is building with purpose. And for us, building with purpose is really, first of all, to understand who's going to benefit from that investment. That, by the way, investment is not just building new product. It's also, for example, uh, increasing the technical bar or operational excellence of a product, or for example, setting uh, KPIs in terms of service quality or service levels that your customers will actually notice. And then uh, what you need to do behind the scenes to actually meet and drive those outcomes. And so I think Before you start building anything, the questions to ask are, first of all, who am I building for? And really, why should I build uh, anything? And really reinforcing the fact that today, as an engineer, you can't afford to be only focused on the how. This is no longer a pure builder profession. This is actually a strategic change profession. It's a profession that actually drives the art of the possible, therefore drives the strategic agenda. And in order to embrace this new figure of the engineer, you need to understand the why and the business outcomes first and foremost, even before you actually build a solution. You also talk a lot about working backwards from the customer. I call it having an outside-in point of view. AWS calls it customer-focused. You spent a bunch of time at AWS. Were there any specific learnings on how you, from AWS and at Goldman, on how you drive this customer-centric view, this customer-centric principle? I think one of the big things that I learned at AWS is when you build software and services, starting from understanding who's your customer and also setting the right expectations from the start. Expectations being, for example, what is the minimum lovable product or the minimum viable product? What will actually make those customers happy and make them become advocate of your service? And then also, what are the right KPIs or expectations from a service level perspective? What is the right scalability, latency, availability, etc.? Because not everything needs to be 100%, by the way. And really tuning your service level expectations to something that drives the right outcome for that particular customer you're targeting, I think will eventually make the developer experience much better because it removes a lot of frustration from the developer community. So we implemented this, what we call front-to-back organizational concept. Our engineers are embedded within the businesses. 
but also importantly, they're not physically, just physically embedded within the business, but they're also embedded within uh, the business objectives from the start. And so they share the business objectives from the beginning, talking to their business counterparts. And one of the things that we do is actually like to drive the building and the construction of a working backwards document, which we had to adapt from, you know, some of the Amazon learnings, but really something that puts down on paper what the product is supposed to do viewed from a customer's viewpoint, answering the five famous questions. So who's the customer at work, the benefits are driving, how do you know that those are, et cetera. But then also asking a set of frequently asked questions where you bring in all the themes that you want a product team to be aware of. For example, the operational excellence themes, for example, the business impact themes, for example, the security themes. One of the feedback that I got, uh, you know, when we started to introduce this working backwards and this written culture was that it was immediately seen as a mechanism to drive inclusion. And the way I say that is because uh, by going through the process, you're actually making sure that everybody's voice is heard. When you read it at the beginning of a meeting, you're doing the ultimate sign of respect uh, for the people that have actually written it, which is you're listening to their voice uninterrupted for the entire length of the document. So interruption and, uh, and you know, the meeting dynamic uh, sometimes can be so disruptive. And so this mechanism ensures that everyone starts with the same set of information, discussions become factual, become respectful, and then often lead to better outcomes. I want to double click on something you said earlier. You know, you talked about customers becoming advocates. I've found it to be challenging, at least we in the infrastructure software business. You guys do a lot of infrastructure as well. To get the infrastructure engineers to appreciate that somebody is going to use their product three layers up to actually solve a business problem. Because the advocacy comes from not just the resilience of the infrastructure, but also the features like UX and things like that. Have you figured out a way to get the folks down in the stack to actually appreciate the outcomes that you're looking to drive or the KPIs you're looking to drive? It has been one of the most difficult cultural changes, which is to actually have the senior leadership of the firm, especially people that are not in technology, to really appreciate the importance of those elements, which can be fairly easily kind of forgotten, especially if they work well. And so one of the things that we've done is First of all, to actually get teams to present to forums where you have senior leaders in terms of how those improvements at the infrastructure level are essential to meet some of the customer expectations. And so, for example, we want products to be fast. We want products to be reliable. We want to respond very quickly to issues. We want to have the least amount of breaks in our processes. We want to have the highest standards in terms of how quickly we respond to customers. And so I think to me, the difficult thing for a leadership or for us from a technology viewpoint is really to explain how you can draw a line between the quality of the infrastructure and customer outcomes. And I think to me, velocity and quality of the deliverables and the ability to actually meet sort of a non-functional requirement, such as how responsive services, you know, how quickly can, can I escalate an issue or uh, latency or uh, percentage of transactions that we can do straight through processing for is something that business people will understand. And so see outcomes and customer outcomes and customer expectations is where everybody meets, is where technical people, no matter where they are in the stack and business people meet. 
And so elevating that and, and, and making that part of what we celebrate, what we highlight, is not just a release. It's also the fact that we reduce the number of incidents. It's the fact that we decrease our mean time to recovery, et cetera. Those things, you put them as part of your KPIs that you surface to the leadership team. And then at that point, you're closing a loop for which every engineer is going to be grateful for. No, for sure. I have a saying at DataStacks that says activities don't pay for college educations. Outputs are important because that's what matters at the end, right? And so keeping everybody aligned. And I love the fact that it's not just the engineers, but keeping everybody aligned on outcomes and doing a document approach, like a written approach is working for you. I'm sure it must have been a massive change on what you walked through. Yeah, it's still a work in progress. It's still in progress. It's still a change. It's still a work in progress. Uh, That's really the reality of it because culture is difficult to change. But we see definitely signals of change. We see a, a direction being sent. And also we see a lot of recognition that there is a direct impact on the business outcomes. And I think that is at the end what's most important. For sure. One further question on this, right? You advocate, and I'm assuming you do advocate that, you know, you don't need to wait for perfection, but you get a version of something that works and then look for feedback, right? I talk about the best things actually happen in the cathedral, but very quickly get to the bazaar because that's where the magic happens, right? It's not in the, I'm solving a computer science problem. Somebody has to start using it, right? And so how do you get the team to realize that getting feedback and iterating is really important. So one of the things that I tell people when they ask me, what would be a, an advice that you would give to your younger self or you would give to people that are uh, you know at the beginning of their careers? And, and what I often say is be ready to redefine what success means along the way. Really, be ready to redefine what success means along the way. Because things might not end exactly where you wanted them to because things change along the way. And so one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make is being too rigid in their outcomes. And often failure is a result of this lack of flexibility. And look at what's happening right now. I mean, things are changing almost on a daily basis in profound ways. And so the ability to adapt and the ability to redefine success is actually often the formula for success. And of course, you need to keep a certain direction. And so it's like, you know, if I ask you to drive uh, to a different city, and if I give you a turn-by-turn navigation, as long as you arrive to the city, I can be very flexible on the fact that you might have actually taken some detours in the way. And if you measure yourself with the wrong metric, which would be compliance to your turn-by-turn yeah. navigation, uh, you will get what you measure. Yeah. <laughs> you will get what you measure, you will get a bad outcome. And so I think it's very important to be open to modifying your goals and targets. And obviously, one of the key aspects of the inspiring trust tenet that I mentioned before is that we embrace change and sometimes failure as an essential element of growth and be very vocal about it and really own it as a leader. Yeah. No, I I love that. I often use a soccer analogy, which is it's okay to move the goalpost. Because guess what? I mean, you may have been, because things have changed, you may have scored a goal and you'll feel like shit. But if you move the goalpost, you'll feel much better about the outcome and you'll move on to the next one. Right? And so that's perfect.
All right, we've got to talk about AI. So you and I have spent some time talking about real-time data and AI, and companies are struggling to get value from the data because of cost complexity, right? What would you share, right? Because you've been on the bleeding edge, cutting edge of doing this. What would you share with other leaders? What are some tips and tricks that you would share with them? Well, especially with AI, data is really everything. It's like possibly the most important thing because AIs are trained on data and you evaluate AIs based on data. So it's almost sometimes difficult to really draw a hard line between uh, you know what's AI and what's data. And data quality has been a, an incredible area of focus for us. We have a massive effort uh, to improve data discoverability, data interoperability, to have good data models that are consistent, that are extensible, having a semantics associated to the data. I would say data is really the foundation of our digital transformation journey. And the technology stack that we build on top of our data and the ability to really be able to extract signals from it, I think is what really allows you to innovate and achieve agility, velocity, and also improve the quality of your of your decisions. So digital transformation simply will not work without those foundations. And we are obviously very conscious that a data strategy can also potentially drive additional complexity and potentially cost. And that's why it's so important that we do it right and we make the right decisions. We've been, for example, leveraging the open source community quite a bit. I think not only leveraging the open source community as a, as a user, but also contributing to open source data platform is super important because it makes developers feel part of it and part of what they're using and also being able to kind of be in the loop and participating. And I would say, is today the age of AI or is it the age of data? I mean, at the end of the day, I think today is really the age of knowledge in a completely redefined way. And so... Really, this ability to turn data into knowledge and actually to leverage knowledge to kind of create new possibilities for companies, for jobs, et cetera, for how you learn, how you interact with knowledge, how you spread knowledge, how you codify knowledge. I think this could be possibly the biggest revolution that we will see in our lifetime. For sure. And one of the things I want to double click on two things. One of the things I've been talking about when this is a little bit of the generative AI and open AI push and but Bard and other people are doing, right? Which is a lot of companies are going to realize that the models matter, but not as much as they used to think. Their data matters a lot more because it's a signal from the model. The signal from the data is what is makes a difference, right? Do you agree with that concept? I agree with the concept. I would say that what is a, a model? I think it's a essentially a representation that comes from the data itself. And so it's kind of the form, uh, is a structure that derives from data and then is used to filter data into new data that gets produced. And so I couldn't agree more. And in fact, I would say that really like the big focus area that every company really needs to go through is to try to understand what are the valuable data sources that they have within the organization from which uh, they can really extract knowledge. And then uh, the extraction of this knowledge and then the augmentation of the capabilities of summarization, filtering, et cetera, can lead to really tremendous competitive advantage to those who don't take the same approach. And so I think at the end of the day, I think, like I said before, I can almost almost not distinguish where data starts and when AI starts. It's kind of part of the same. Yeah. And 
I'll just say personally, the last time I was so excited about technology was when the browser came out, right? You know, and obviously HTTP and all that stuff. I mean, I was excited about the iPhone, but this generative AI stuff is just mind-blowing on how big a deal it can be. And for enterprises, right? Because you can take all the predictive stuff that you've been doing for years and make it so much better with these large language models that you're going to get outside that are in open source. It is not a just go to one or two vendors. And so I hope you agree with the enthusiasm of how much it is going to affect the world we live in. Well, you know, some or, people- Or not. <laughs> no, I mean, I tell you that uh, I had to kind of try to suspend my disbelief for a very long time. You know, I've been exposed to AI for many years. Looking at what's been happening and looking at some of the results that you see out there and some of the stuff that we've been experimenting, I tell you that I agree that at least as far as I'm concerned, there hasn't been uh, anything that I could say has been uh, more top of mind and more disrupt potentially disruptive than any other technology that I've seen. So we you hear all the time a comparison being made with other inventions. A lot of people are saying, hey, you know what? This is like the internet. It's like the browser. It's like the fire or the wheel. <laughs> my favorite analogy is it's like the printing press because it is, to me, fundamentally a revolution of knowledge. And so the same way as the printing press actually removed the obstacle of actually being able to access knowledge so that you didn't have to know someone with the manuscript or know the person in order to actually understand their thinking. And so the book actually removed the scalability constraints and now everybody could have a book and then libraries were created, universities were created, you know, knowledge was available at scale. But then another constraint that remained until today is the accessibility of a book from a knowledge standpoint. If you have a very insightful, but very difficult to read book, sometimes you need to wait, you know, you need to study for 10 years just to be able to arrive to a level of understanding. I say 10 years, any amount of time. Imagine a very complex mathematical paper, but might have insights that might be of relevant also to a non-mathematician. For the first time, a book that is codified, knowledge that is codified in an AI, has the ability to explain itself based on the reader. In fact, with the prompt, the reader almost becomes the writer, okay? And the reader and the writer are, for the very first time, are at equal footing at the same level. And now you actually can extract relevant information from a, a corpus of knowledge in a way that actually follows your understanding. And that has never been done before. And I tell you one thing that is not just about scalability of information in books. It's also, you know, you talked about data. I know you have a great product for data that is in computers, but do you have a product for data that is in people's head? And yeah. if, if you look at uh, any company in the world, a lot of data, a lot of knowledge is very tribal and it is actually in people's heads. And one of the great things about language models is the fact that you can combine artifacts of what people leave as traces, what they write, what they say, or, you know, like you can train them on the thinking of people. And then at the end of the day, you can actually codify that knowledge into something that can actually be at scale. So people could one day interact with some of the experts without having to send an email or without having to kind of, they would just chat with the model that has been trained with their thinking. And imagine how scalable could that be? 
That's a great segue into our rapid fire questions, which is brought to you by GPT 3.5. We're not quite using 4.0. What song are you listening to on repeat? Oh, I'm uh, listening to Ordinary World by Duran Duran. <laughs> ah, <laughs> we both date ourselves. That's awesome. <laughs> Favorite app on your phone? I meditate with an app called Calm. I really like it. You should try waking up. It's just as good. Is that because I'm, it looks like I'm falling asleep? No, no, no. It is uh, the I'm app joking. is by a gentleman by the name of Sam Harris. It's a good app, but Calm is great as well. If you would like to have dinner with any, anyone, dead or alive, who would you choose? Probably Alan Turing. And I would pick his brain on AI. Yeah, he was way ahead. What's your least favorite tech buzzword? Least favorite? Framework. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken as a true practitioner. <laughs> One word or phrase to best describe great leaders. I think great leaders are those who inspire others to operate at their best. Just get the best out of other people. And generally, you would agree more than what they think they can get from themselves. That's the part that you know a lot of people forget, which is you think you can run a nine-minute mile, you actually may be able to run an eight-minute mile if you do this the right way. And so, Parko, this has been, like all our conversations, awesome, a blast. I think we could go for another hour on this. At some point, we'll have you back. We really, really appreciate your time. Our listeners will absolutely love this. Thank you, Shat. It's been a great honor to be here. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Execution Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. We have many more phenomenal guests and inspiring stories to come. So be sure to join us next time.